We're in Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped in the place over where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We're in Matthew's Gospel. We're in the birth narratives, our Christmas stories given to us by Matthew and by Luke. In Luke's gospel, we read of shepherds. Luke had a passion to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And and he talks about shepherds, the, the outcasts of society. Matthew speaks of kings, wise men from the east. Even though he is, has a Jewish feel to his gospel, he wants to include the nations. We are spoken to of three gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Last week, we looked at gold. Gold for a king, king of the Jews, but also king of the whole world. And this week, we look at frankincense. What is it? Well, I've got some here. It's, it's, a, it's a fragrance. It's a, it's a resin. It's, I, yeah, it's interesting. Have a smell. <laughs> it's an aromatic resin. It's used in incense and perfumed. It's obtained from trees in the genus Boswellia. In the family Bursaricae. That's the end of my botany lesson for today. These trees grow in northern Africa and the Middle East, and their resin is ground and put with oil and is a pleasing and healing fragrance. Frankincense is mentioned 13 times in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament, once here and once in Revelation. And the vast majority of references refer to its use in worship. And that's going to be our focus today. We're going to look at the gift of worship, God's gift of worship to us and our gift of worship back towards him. But it's also referenced prophetically by Isaiah. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 6. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. These are famous Christmas words. Verse 2, for behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around about you. And see, they all gather, they all come to you. Your sons will come from afar, your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice. Because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. And listen to this in verse 6. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah in the east, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense. They will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Isaiah, writing to a nation in Israel, a nation in exile, points the people to a day of redemption. And on that day, people will come from Sheba in the east bringing gold and frankincense. Isn't that amazing? What then was the significance of frankincense to the people of God? Our first reference to it in Scripture describes its purpose. In Exodus 30, as part of God's instruction to Moses on the construction of the tabernacle, we looked at this earlier in the year, we read in verse 34 of chapter 30, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacta, and onicha, and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. With it you will make an incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer salted, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Frankincense was used in this special fragrance. An oil that would be lit and the, the fragrance would, would permeate up and through the tent. And it was holy. It was about worship. It was a holy fragrance to be used for God alone in the tent of meeting. Frankincense is about worship. Frankincense tells us that this child is worthy of worship. Last time, Caroline reminded us that these gifts tell us things about Jesus and encourage us to embrace the generosity of God. These wise men have brought gifts that make sense to them. They are valuable items. They're things that they would have used. They're aware they're coming to a king and so they want to bring their best, gold, frankincense, myrrh. These were expensive things. But as we have seen hinted at in Isaiah 60, these gifts were also parts of God's plan for revealing the true identity of this child. Gold declares this child to be the sovereign king. Myrrh 
as we'll see next time, speaks of death and sacrifice and grace. Frankincense talks about worship and divinity. At one level, this gift of frankincense is another reference to Christ's divinity as Matthew uses his birth narrative to reveal to his first readers and to us who Jesus is. Remember, that's the goal of the gospel writers, not just to record a history, but to tell their readers and tell us who Jesus is. So Matthew, through this narrative, has layered aspects of Christ's um, divinity. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. Angelic visitors tell Joseph not to fear. They, are, they tell Joseph to give him the name Jesus. He will save the people from their sins, something only God can do. Isaiah's prophecy is read. These gifts tell us Jesus, this gift of frankincense tells us Jesus is God. And frankincense shows us that this passage is at one level all about worship. This gift of frankincense is not the only worship reference in our passage. What I find interesting is that everyone involved in this, in this little exchange recognises that this new king is more than just a human baby. There are four references to worship in these verses alongside the reference to frankincense. The wise men say to Herod, we have come to worship him. Herod Herod asked the chief priest, where is the Messiah to be born? The Messiah, the promised one who will be king of the Jews and will be worshipped. Herod says, a bit duplicitously, tell me where he is that I might go and worship him and then in verse 11 it says on coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary they bowed down and worshipped him worship runs through this passage and when we come to scripture especially scriptures like this that might for some of us be very familiar I've heard this scripture read for the last 55 years of my life when I've gone to church at Christmas And when we come to scriptures that are familiar, we must ask ourselves, what does this passage say about God? And what does this passage say about me? The first question we've already answered. This passage tells us that this baby is divine. Jesus was the word made flesh, as John will tell us in his gospel. This Christmas child is worthy of worship because he is God. This child created in a mother's womb is also the creator of the universe and the world which he now inhabits. So what about the second question? What does this passage tell me about me? Well, it tells me I should be a worshipper. Uh, And that seems obvious, and yet in this passage it would appear that the worship opportunity is missed by most of the cast. Reading a passage like this a number of times, as I tend to do when I'm preparing a sermon, it quickly becomes apparent that there are a number of groups of three in this passage. So there are three locations. We start in the east, 
Then we go to Jerusalem. Then we go to Bethlehem. There are three wise men traditionally, probably because we're told of the three gifts. There are three divine interactions, the star, the prophetic words, and angelic visitation in dreams. There are three groups of potential worshippers, the Magi, Herod, and the priests. And there are three responses, adoration, anger, and apathy. It is these responses that will take up the remainder of our time as we look at them and see what they tell us about ourselves. As Caroline told us last time, the first response is the correct one. The Magi get it right. Adoration, worship. These Eastern mystics with no Jewish heritage to speak of get it. As is so often the way in the Gospels, the people seemingly furthest away from God seem to come to Jesus first. They declare we've come to worship him and worship him they do with their time, with their energy, with their gifts, with their bodies. But what about the responses of Herod and the priests? Herod's response is, as well as duplicitous, one of anger. Possibly anger born out of fear, anger at losing his status, fear of losing his identity. You see, if there's another king, where does that leave Herod? It would appear from this passage and from what we know of Herod's life that his identity was so connected to the power of his role that fear of losing his autonomy leads him to taking the life of every newborn and male toddler in Bethlehem at that time. He doesn't adore Christ. He's angry at God challenging him through Christ. And then there are the priests These are the religious leaders of the day, the scholars, the intellectuals at the top of the academic tree. They have all the facts at their disposal. They know their stuff. If you're in a a pub quiz with a Bible round, you want them in your team. They know who this child is. They know what he means. They know where he is to be born. They know enough to point others to him. They are given all the information but seemingly cannot be bothered to travel the nine kilometres from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. According to Google Maps, it would have taken them a couple of hours. I know it's uphill, but even so. Were they also afraid? Were they fearful it might be a hoax? Were they fearful they would be disappointed? Or were they possibly more afraid that it wasn't a hoax? What about me? about you. It's easy to identify the heroes in this story. The wise men, they get it. It's equally easy to spot the villains of the piece. The text tells us what Herod and the priests did and didn't do. And we can easily judge them for their actions. Judgment's easy, friends. I'm naturally good at it, and so are you. The key question is not what the passage tells me about them. It's what it tells me about me. So the question here is not why did Herod and the priests miss out on worshipping Jesus. The question is why do I so often miss out on worship? 
Why do I miss out on the opportunity to praise and worship God, both when we're gathered and when we're scattered? Well, here's a few reasons. Firstly, I forget that worship is a gift from God before it's a gift of me from me to God. It's Christmas, if you've noticed. And as those of you who know me well know I'm a huge Christmas fan. I like, I like every bit of Christmas and I love the gifts. And when my children were smaller, I was eager for them to buy gifts for especially their mum, my wife Gwen. And so when they were little, we would go into town so that they could buy their mum a gift. They didn't have any money. So what happened? Well, their dad would give them money and, we'd go to, and then they would choose a gift which they would then give back to their mum. The same would happen towards me. I'd get a gift from my child, my four-year-old, my five-year-old, my six-year-old at Christmas, which in effect I bought for myself. I loved getting it. They gave out of what had been given to them. Sometimes I think we lose sight and we don't worship because we forget that actually worship is not due to God because God is insecure. God is not sitting there going, oh no, I hope Simon worships me today. That will give me enough energy to get through the day and sustain the universe by my powerful word as I speak stars into being. And God is independent of my worship. He delights in my worship. He doesn't need my worship. Ah, so why am I commanded to worship? Well, it must be for my benefit. Worship must be God's gift to me. And that's what we're looking at in this Advent series is embracing the generosity of God. And one of the ways I do that is to give back to God that which he's given to me. Like the Magi, they went all in. They committed their time and their resource and their best gifts, not out of idle curiosity, but because they recognised that this child changed everything. See, they were star worshippers until they discovered that their true site of worship was the one who named the stars. See, we're hardwired for worship, friends. We're created for worship. Why do you think we get so caught up in our stuff or our jobs or our families or our leisure time? Why do we get so impassioned about a football team or a gadget or a fine wine or closing the deal or redoing the house? Why? Because actually we love to get excited about stuff. We love to give ourselves to stuff. We love to be all in because we are created for worship. And if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus, we'll worship the other stuff. Not that the other stuff is bad. It's a gift. But actually, we're created to worship God. These magi realised they were created for worship. They'd just been worshipping the wrong thing. Why do I forget this central truth that I'm created for worship and worship is a gift to me? Well, sometimes it's because like Herod, I get locked in anger and fear. You see, if I do worship God and God alone, what does that mean about my hopes and dreams? What does that mean about my career? What does that mean about my status? What does that mean about my title? I'm a lead elder, don't you know? Uh, well, yeah, maybe. If I worship God, I have to lay those things down. 
sometimes I get angry with God because he hasn't done things the way I would do them because guess what? He's God and I'm not. Sometimes his plan is not my plan. I get frustrated with that. Sometimes other Christians let me down and hurt me and disappoint and sometimes I let you down and hurt you and disappoint. And we're not careful. We can let those things get in the way. Just like Herod did. Sometimes I'm like the priests. I'm not angry, just apathetic. I come every week, sit in the same seat, sing the same songs, and sometimes we're honest, hear the same sermon. That's just what I do. Yeah, that can happen if I forget. I'm created to delight myself in God, to delight myself in the Father. Sometimes it's all the stuff around me that demand my time. Nine kilometres and a two-hour walk doesn't seem like much, but these were priests and teachers. They were busy, and it was Christmas. Sometimes I'm just too busy and preoccupied to push through a bit of disappointment or a bit of apathy or a bit of anger. And so we forget worship is a gift from God to us because it helps us reset ourselves. How then do we press through? How might we recalibrate ourselves this Christmas when it comes to worship as we think of frankincense and how it takes us to the Holy of Holies, to the tent of meeting? Well, there are lots of ways. But here are the things that the wise men used to stir their worship. Firstly, creation. The star. Experts have postulated that this star was a conflagration of a number of planets. Maybe we don't know. What we do know is the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the glory due his name. God gives us creation. God calls us, lift up your eyes to the heavens that the king of glory might come in. Whether it's the giggle of a small child, an incredible clear Christmas sky, whether it's the beauty of leaves as they change and fall and new buds appear, whether it's snow melting, all these amazing things in creation. Well, they're there to point us to the creator. Creation points us to the creator as it did these stargazers from the east. Creation recalibrates our worship. So does community. We don't know how many wise men there were. We traditionally say three because we've got three gifts. What we do know is this, it's more than one. They came as a team. They came as a community. They worshipped together. It was quite a journey. There must have been moments when the cloud came down, when they couldn't see the star, when someone had lost their way, when they'd hurt themselves and they thought, oh, should we bother? Well, clearly in those moments, at least one of them went, come on, let's keep going. Community helps us worship. Yes, our whole lives are about worship, our work, how we treat one another, how we handle our money, how we raise our children, how we handle our friends. All of these things are worship, but we also gather for worship. 
We've just spent a season looking at our gathered worship. What did we say? When you come together, each one has for the common good. Yes, when we are angry or apathetic or disappointed or frustrated or in pain or struggling, sometimes all we can do is get ourselves in the room. But then those around us, some of whom are carrying all the same stuff that we are, sing and lift their hands and declare truth and read scripture and bring a prophetic word. Suddenly the community enables us to worship. We worship together. Creation points us to God. The community points us to God. Next for them was the word of God. Creation and community brought these men to Jerusalem. It's the word of God that took them to Bethlehem. Scripture refocused them and brought them to the place of worship. It does the same for us if we let it. All of Scripture helps us worship, but the songbook of the Bible, the book of Psalms, is so helpful because it's so real. I love the Psalms of lament. I love the Psalms where the psalmist goes, Do you know what, God? I worshiped you yesterday. And I'll probably worship you tomorrow. So even though I feel rubbish today, I'll worship you today based on my history and based on my future. It's real. The psalmist shouts out to God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why has this happened? Why do my enemies prosper? Why are you not blessing me? It's real, but it also is true about who God is true about who we are. It tells us who we are in God. It reminds us we're created to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Creation, community, the Word of God. These things will recalibrate us and call us to worship. And finally, beholding Jesus. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Creation, community, and the word of God bring them to the edge of worship. But beholding Jesus seals the deal. Sixty years later, the writer to the Hebrews would encourage us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Next time, Sean will help us do just that. Fix our eyes on Jesus as we behold the final gift And we're reminded of the real gift in this passage, the gift of the cross. So what are we saying? We're saying worship matters. Frankincense speaks to us about worship. These wise men model sacrificial worship. We're reminded that worship is a gift to us from God for our benefit, not his. But our worship is also a gift to our world. As we fix our eyes on Jesus when we gather and when we are scattered, we are declaring the truth of Christmas to our community, to our neighbourhood, to our workplace and our family and friends. Our impact might be imperceptible to us, but God will use our devotion to him in unexpected ways. Why did these men travel from the east? Why were they looking for a sign? How had they even heard of the Jews and Jerusalem? Well, I wonder. I wonder if in their history they had read about men from Jerusalem who had been brought to their nation. 
And despite all the pressure around them, these men had chosen to worship their God. I wonder if these wise men from the East, as they studied the annals of their history, had heard the names of Daniel, of Shadrach, of Meshach, and Abednego. I wonder if they'd heard the stories of these faithful worshippers who refused to bow their knee to anyone other than their God, even in the face of flames and hungry lions. Keep worshipping, friends. It's God's gift to you. It's your gift back to God. But it's also our gift to those around us to help them fix their eyes on Jesus this Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these gifts that declare who Christ was and is. This Christmas, help us fix our eyes on you, enjoying all the trappings but not being trapped by them as we spend our time worshipping you this Christmas time. Amen.